opened the bedrooms without finding any of the evidence necessary to their inquiry. They had questioned my wife, asking her how often I went out, if I stayed out long, if I received any strange visitors in my home. After an hour of this, the Gestapo had abandoned the search and left without finding any of the compromising documents, particularly a map of the coastal fortifications of Saint-Valéry, which I had fortunately hidden among a lot of administrative files and papers. Heavily escorted, in the usual iron-grey Citroën, I was taken to Amiens. On the way, we drove through Aïe-le-Haut-Clochy, a little village that had been bombed the previous night. We had managed to get information through to London about some V-1 launching platforms in the neighbourhood, and the Royal Air Force hadn't delayed in making the most of our directions. I was secretly jubilant as I watched the chagrin of my guards at the destruction of their precious, secret installations. It was nearly two o'clock when we arrived at the prison in Amiens. I was interrogated in an office full of German soldiers, and a clerk wrote down all that was said, standing silently at his side. Watching me closely all the time was a dark-haired young woman, about thirty years old, fairly well-built and wearing a dark brown frock, Lucienne Dan. Then they took my wallet, my fountain pen, my propelling pencil, and my belt, but left me with my watch, my tie, and my braces, contrary to general prison practice. This done... I was taken to cell number 16 on the ground floor. At five o'clock, the door opened to admit a German followed by a fellow carrying a pan of soup. The German said something to me in a very vehement voice. I made signs to him that not only could I not understand what he was saying, but that I could not take my serving of the soup as I had no bowl or plate. With a few more guttural grunts, he went away and I had to do without my soup. The rest of the night was uneventful, apart from the fact that the sentry on duty would come and look through the spy hole in my door to make sure that nothing unusual went on. I couldn't get to sleep. It was bitterly cold, and my pelasse, which was only about three feet long, was all I had. No blankets or covers at all. The next day, at eleven o'clock, two guards arrived and one of them said to me in French, You are to go to the Sicherheitspolizei, Gestapo, for interrogation. At midday I was taken into an office where the young fellow who had arrested me the day before sat enthroned. He asked me what my clandestine activities were, to which group I belonged, and so on. I had the uneasy impression that he knew altogether too much about too many things, and that he was just playing with me, watching my reactions. He decided to interrupt the interrogation at one o'clock. I must eat, you understand, he told me. I wished him bon appétit, which seemed to surprise him. Then I was put in the next room, a kind of cell with only a fixed bench as furniture, there I stayed until they let me out at 3.30. After a little more desultory questioning, the young German said, We will go on with this interrogation later. Doubtless, I thought to myself, 
He wants his siesta now. As for me, I was taken back to my cell. An hour later, we had the soup comedy all over again. Bulging-eyed, the German regarded my mime, shouted some more, and went off. And still, I had had no soup. The next day, at eleven in the morning, I was taken once more before the Gestapo chief. This time he made no bones about it. We know that General de Gaulle has chosen you to be préfet of Amiens after the Libération. We know all your friends. Then he described, very exactly, some of the resistance members who had visited me at my office. In reply to my suggestion that a sous-préfet had to receive all callers, whatever their condition, he added, On such and such a day you received a certain person.